Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. How's your summer going? If you're listening to this live in the sense that you're catching it immediately upon release or shortly thereafter, it's summertime. But just wait. We're going to be talking about low water, and that's something that is going to be pertinent no matter what time of year you're in, because guess what? The next season is coming. Low water is something that we have to deal with really, no matter where we fish, no matter what species we fish for, and no matter what time of year we are fishing in. And generally speaking, I would say that low water and some of the other issues that accompany it, uh, warmer water temperatures and uh, you know lower dissolved oxygen content, and those things kind of run hand in hand, those last two, those things directly impact trout fishing. And more to the point, they impact trout. And the reason for that is because trout have narrower margins regarding the thresholds in which they thrive. Uh, the, the three main species that we have in the States, brook trout, brown trout, and rainbow trout, all have a little bit of different um, ranges where they enjoy from a temperature standpoint. But generally speaking, they're going to have a much more narrow threshold than some of the other game fish that we pursue. Now, that's not to say that bass are impervious. That isn't to say that, you know, carp can live anywhere. We we often have that idea that, oh, a carp can live everywhere, but they, they can't. They, just like any other animal, any other living thing in the world, there are thresholds and margins in which they have to occupy, not just to exist, but then to thrive and, and ultimately perpetuate themselves. And I mean, people are the same way and we can appreciate that. We know what it's like to be stressed. And so this is a fishing commentary, but it's also kind of an environmental commentary. But I I do want to talk more about how we approach fishing in these situations and how these times aren't necessarily, you know, complete giant X's when it comes to, you know, our fishing opportunities. 
Uh, and I actually have some anecdotal evidence, even from the last 24 hours, to share to to talk about that. But the other thing I want to mention is that there's so many variables here. Uh, I, I don't mean this to be a missive for or against the concept of climate change. Um, I, I think that there are certainly cyclical patterns that we're experiencing at a micro level within the course of a year and a macro level at the course of whether it be generations or centuries. And those have direct influences on our rainfall and our temperatures and all of those things. Uh, but there are also other factors in play that we can't, uh, we can't discount. Uh, so for example, when you think of low water and how it impacts not just fly fishing, but also fisheries and the communities that that are on the rivers and the economies of those communities as it relates not only to water sports and to outdoors activities, but even farming, you have countless issues there that have to be dealt with. And some of them are directly man-made, whether it be damming or whether it be irrigation, uh, or whether it be other water use. Other ones might be at a larger uh, uh, picture, I, again, going back to potential uh, uh, negative impacts over generational uh, uh, use of water and of the environment. And so it's very hard to pin those things down. And I think that scientists are doing good work in trying to figure this out. We just have to be very patient and understand that a lot of these are longitudinal studies that we can't nail down in a matter of, of years or even decades. But all that to say, uh, I went fishing yesterday and I went fishing in a stream that is a spring influenced creek. Now, I want to use nomenclature properly. This is not a chalk stream. It is not even a spring creek in the most true sense of the word, because this is a little freestone stream that has significant spring seep influences. That's uh, actually named after a spring. I went online last night, I was kind of goofing around and figured out uh, some of the history of the area. And this spring pumps a lot of cold, highly oxygenated water into this small stream. And so consequently, I catch lots of brook trout in a place where there are no longer lots of brook trout aside from this stream. And it's fantastic, and it's a little hidden gem, and it's an incredibly fragile resource, but it's also a very resilient resource because it has that spring-fed influence. And one of the things that I've often said, and one of the things that you're probably very aware of if you've been fly fishing for any period of time, or you know, just outdoors for any period of time, is that spring-fed or spring-influenced streams are much more resilient for a lot of reasons. One being is that they're getting this constant supply of cold, well-oxygenated water that is very minimally influenced by rainfall or by external temperatures. So that water coming out of the ground is going to be a consistent temperature within a few degrees variation over the course of the year. And then immediately downstream from where that water enters the water system, it is going to be is going to negate the impacts of the external temperature. So that is to say, if it's very cold out, it's going to stay at the same temperature. If it's very warm out, it's going to stay at the same temperature, but it's going to progressively uh, warm up or be influenced as you move downstream from that source or those sources. So what that means for us as anglers is that those are great consistent fisheries in the sense that those thresholds that need to be maintained for trout to not only live, 
but to thrive are going to be maintained for longer periods of time. These are going to be fisheries that are going to be year-round fisheries, not necessarily seasonal fisheries. They're going to be fisheries that are often the ones that are first protected for catch and release regulations, fly fishing only regulations for that very reason, because they are able to sustain year-round uh, populations of trout that breed, that are self-sustaining, that don't need hatchery um, uh, assistance. And so the states are, you know, rightfully in most situations, uh, putting regulations on these streams so that fish cannot be harvested from them and that best practices to preserve these uh, fish and their integrity of the populations is are, are being recommended. So I went fishing one of the streams yesterday. Well, we haven't had a lot of rain. We've had very sporadic thunderstorms, which is kind of bizarre for New England, but it isn't out of the question. Uh, kind of a side note within a tangent, uh, went running a couple days ago, three miles from the house, the heavens just opened up. And I mean, I got poured on, soaked from head to sole of my running shoes. And the squelching, squirching sound that you can imagine from a wet running shoe was with every pay, with every step was pretty obnoxious. I get home, everything is completely dry. I walk in my house and my family's like, what happened to you? And that's just kind of the, the situation that we've been having, where we've had these sporadic storms where uh, the river level, uh, I've got a major river that flows through my town, really, really big river. The river is low, but then all of a sudden, for, for no reason, the river level will rise and we haven't had rain. Well, it's because further upstream, they had a couple of flash storms and it throws a bunch of water into the system. So it's just a really wonky season. That being said, we're not at drought levels. I mean, things aren't, aren't terrible. Uh, my grass looks pretty crunchy. But the, a lot of the ponds are still in good shape. And a lot of the rivers still have a, a good amount of water in them. They're just lower. Well, I go to this stream because I was in the area and because I wanted to catch trout and because it produces consistently. And I show up and it is low. It is lower than I have ever seen it. And immediately I kind of got panicked. What happened? This is actually a stream where it's so small that there was a big beaver dam that got put in it. And it really influenced the uh, course of the stream downstream from the dam, which is relatively close to the, the biggest spring uh, seep. And this was maybe two winters ago. This dam was basically uh, finished by these, this beaver family. And it ended up not being a bad thing. Ended up creating just some new dynamics in the stream. It uh, created a little bit more speed in some places where the water was slow. So it was actually a really good thing. Created a little pond that uh, that some larger trout have begun to congregate in. So it's, it was something that freaked me out initially. I've come to see the benefits of. Uh, so I know this stream is a little bit resilient, both because of it being a spring creek and also I've seen it go through a lot even in the last 10 years. Well, I show up, immediately put my hand in the water, uh, not super empirical, more observational. and. Again, a lot of what I'm talking about here is more observational and not empirical. That is to say, it's what I've noticed, what I've seen both uh, today, uh, yesterday, uh, over the last couple decades of fly fishing, um, rather than empirical. Not a lot of instruments. I don't have reports up in front of me. I don't have data in front of me. I don't have um, papers up in front of me. But uh, I think what, what I have to say bears the truth of a lot of what I've read regarding these these issues. And I would encourage you to read about this because uh, that's the the hard and fast data that supports and buttresses the uh, the, the observational things that you and I are going to go out and see. So water felt cold. Water looked cold. I see fish rising. So immediately I know that I'm not in the danger zone as far as hurting these fish if I catch them. The water was cold. I wouldn't say uncomfortably cold, but it was definitely colder than than most trout streams are this time of year. It was good cold water. 
furthermore, the water was moving. That was another really cool thing about the stream is that water was not just sitting stagnant, uh, you know, going from pool to pool. Uh, water was still moving. The grade of the stream had enough movement that you know that even uh, half a mile, a uh, third of a mile downstream from the spring source that there is getting their dissolved oxygen is being maintained. Furthermore, the right kind of plant life is growing. And again, this is something that, you know, there's bad kind of plant life. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of things that grow when water gets stagnant and warm, but there's also good plant life that needs good, cold, clean, moving water to, to be maintained. And that uh, again, supports the entire ecosystem. But as I walked around and I started making some casts, I caught a fish, little couple little trout just in nice little pools i realized that i'm i'm getting on some some of these bigger pools and i'm seeing more fish and these fish are not paying my fly any attention and this happens at the first pool and then i kind of start walking to the next pool without casting much and i find the next pool it's actually the pool above the beaver dam and i see dozens of fish now What's going on? Why are there dozens of fish in these pools? Could it be that there's always dozens of fish in these pools and I just haven't noticed it? That's certainly within the realm of possibility. I'm not an expert at this stream or any other stream. But I begin to watch these fish and that's something that I know I don't do enough uh, is just watch fish. But I sat and I watched these fish and they definitely seemed stressed out. And that at first was puzzling to me because again the water was cold the the water had had great uh, uh every, everything it needed to sustain these fish cold dissolved oxygen and again this is all just observational uh but it it was good there was good things going on then i realized that these fish were being concentrated for whatever reason, whether it was their choice or whether it was because of just the dynamics of the stream, that these fish that probably have a little bit more flexibility in how they move up into some of these other spots, some of these smaller pools, some of these shallow riffles, they did not have the opportunity to, to spread out into these other spots. And so consequently, they were being concentrated into these pools that although they were still deep enough to provide refuge, it's probably not what they were used to. And if they had been in the situation for only a few weeks, it was probably leading to some stress. So I know that we have fishers and we have mink and we have raccoons and we have every sort of predatory bird that's out there. And I know I'm not the only person that walks on the stream. I do see footprints from time to time. I do see the evidence of other people that are there. So it wasn't that the water was too low. It wasn't that the temperature was too high. It wasn't that there was any other significant problem. It was all the combination of all of those things together, not leading to a situation where catching one of those fish or fishing for one of those fish was going to be detrimental to it or to the population's health. It was the cumulative effect of all of these stressors causing these fish to just act weird. And there's really no way to explain it. I think I've written before about watching uh, fish body movement. And you can tell when a fish is getting ready to rise. You see that that uh, there's movements of the fin and then maybe there's a lack of movement as the fish rises up. You can tell when a fish is being agitated by your fly going back you know, over and over and over again. And as you're sight fishing, you get to see these things that you don't necessarily see if you're just blindly casting. Well, watching these fish and watching their responses with, with a shadow flying by or me moving, where they would zip around the pool and then get right back to where they were initially holding. 
Um, when I made those first couple casts before I stopped fishing, the exact same thing happened. They would zip around the pool, pay no attention to the fly itself, and they would get back to where they were holding. Just not normal fish behavior. These fish, although all of the variables were there for them to be okay from a, uh, a biological perspective, they were stressed out because what they were experiencing was significantly different than the baseline of what they usually experience. All right. So that was that experience. Now, how do I redeem that time? You can say, well, you caught a fish, so you redeemed it. Okay, that's true. Should Would, would I have not fished knowing what I knew? Probably. I probably would have left the gear in the car or gone and fished for panfish and you know just had a great time doing that in one of the local ponds or rivers. But what did I do once I was on that stream? With low water, I was able to do something I wouldn't have been able to do if I would have just been fishing. One, I was being more observational. I was seeing some of the, the size of these fish. I realized that the average size of the fish is about the average size of the fish I was catching. In some of these pools with my polarized glasses on, I could see all the fish that were in there. Could the lunkers have been hiding under a log or a rock or been somewhere else? Absolutely. But what I was witnessing was that the average size fish uh, that I caught when I was fishing in that stream is about what is in there. So that was one kind of cool thing. The second thing was I was just astounded by the number of fish that were in some of these pools. Uh, that if you even took them and spread them out a couple hundred yards upstream and downstream is still a lot more fish than I thought was in this stream, which is really cool. And assuming that these fish don't have a lot of mortality because uh, of this, uh, you know, weather stretch continuing on for the next few weeks, then that's going to be a really exciting thing for me to think about the next time I go there to slow down and fish some of these other holes much more diligently. Thirdly, the thing that I observed was how stinking deep some of these undercut banks and holes were that I had been fishing. Places that I had fished with an unweighted streamer, because this is a tiny little stream, I realized that I was not doing what I should be doing to get down to where some of these fish will be once the water rises back up, because these are incredibly and remarkably deep holes and deep undercut banks for such a small stream. I'm, I'm talking like up to my waist in a, a place that is maybe only 15 feet wide. And then the an undercut bank that I couldn't even, I mean, I kind of get freaked out and want to reach all the way underneath, but incredibly uh, cavernous spots. And that's probably where these, these, you know, massive 10 and 12 inch brook trout are hanging out is back in these undercut banks that I didn't know that was there to the extent that I observed now that the water was low. Uh, another thing is I observed a lot of the forage that was out there. There was so many tiny frogs. Now, I don't fish frog patterns for trout quite a bit, but if you've encountered small stream fish, uh, particularly brown trout and brook trout, I've noticed they are carnivorous. And just for fun, I might tie up some really tiny, uh, you know, uh, tan and brown colored poppers with some big rubber legs and see if I can get some of these brook trout to chase after these tiny frogs. There's so many of them in there that I can't imagine it's not a food source. But beyond that, I was able to observe a lot of the bait fish. I do fish streamers, like I said, for these trout because they are aggressive little little fish. And I was able to observe some of these minnows, these bait fish, as they were moving around in, in the creek and have a better idea of, of what sizes and colors of bait fish are swimming around there. So I didn't waste my time. I was able to get on a fish, which again, you know, 
take it or leave it. I don't know. I'm sure if it's the best idea or not, but it, it is what it is. But I was also able to observe what was happening. So that would be my encouragement to you. As the weather gets gnarly, uh, if if you have a long dry spell, if you have a really long warm spell. Yes, it might be a good idea based upon where you're fishing to stay off the water. That being said, if you have a true spring creek, if you have a uh, tailwater, then by all means, get out there. Fish those fish those ponds that, that have cold water, fish those creeks, fish those rivers, and, and enjoy it. Um, spend time fishing for other species. But again, remembering that just because they're not trout doesn't mean that they're invincible and invulnerable to adverse weather conditions and stream conditions. But I would say get onto your trout water. Check it out. See see what's going on. Make sure everything's okay. Make sure there's not a significant trapped fish population. Uh, we've seen that with some of these low water incidences where they are bucket brigades of folks that are trapping fish and, and moving them into the main stem of a stream once the water gets low. That happened to me once. I was uh, this idealistic young person down in Arkansas and uh, fishing one of the big uh, TVA tailwaters, catching fish and kind of rounded the bend and there was this puddle. And it was a pretty good size puddle. I mean, it was the size of like a like a master bedroom. And it was deep enough. I mean, it was a couple of feet. But these fish that were in here were completely isolated. Uh, there was about a dozen good-sized trout, I mean, 14, 16-inch trout that had gotten stuck in there. And here I am, young conservationist, thinking, oh, I got to save these fish. I got to save these fish. And so what do you start doing? You try to go grab them with your hands? No, you try to catch them. So I catch a couple of these fish, threw them back in the, the main stem. And I mean, I hadn't even caught two before the, uh, the siren went off saying that the water was going to rise. And within a few minutes, getting back across the stream to some shallower water, the water rises and uh, creates a little channel for those fish to get free. So uh, my heart was in the right place. My brain really wasn't. But you could be in a situation where if your local trout stream is, is suffering a particularly dry or low or warm spell, you might notice something and you can be the eyes and ears for your local fish and game or your local um, department of conservation and be able to say, hey, there's a problem here. Uh, another thing is being on that water and, and being on that water in a responsible way is a great way to stave off people who might want to take advantage of the fish that are being puddled up into those those spots. We can't be on the water all the time, uh, but the more that we are, you know, the, the, the better chances that people will want to treat that uh, resource in a more responsible manner. So just a couple things to think about. You know, there are certainly plenty of opportunities to fish and to fish for trout in the hottest and driest parts of the year uh, for most of us, depending on where we fish. But just be conscientious, be a good user of the resource and also take up that opportunity to to plan and prepare for the next time you're on the water and you can fish this week on casting across Com, the first article, Trout and Feather, July 22. So this is my latest entry in my collaboration with Tim Camisa of Trout and Feather. There is an article talking about talking about fly fishing. You heard me right. Talking about talking about fly fishing. And uh, this is something that I've had to learn and grow on. And it's something that I think everybody can probably learn and grow on to make them a more tolerable friend and family member and angling acquaintance. 
But along with that article, there's also two videos from Trout and Feather. And one is an interview with a smallmouth bass guide uh, about smallmouth bass fly line. And if you know me, you know that I love fly line. I think it's one of the most important things to spend money on in your terminal tackle. So definitely check that out, especially if you fish for warm water fish and, and in particular smallmouth bass. Uh, the other art, uh, video from Tim has to do with camera equipment if you want to film or, or photograph yourself tying flies. This is excellent because it isn't as foolproof as you might think, especially in the day and age of smartphones where everyone thinks they can just use their smartphone to create uh, fantastic quality content. And while that is often the case, and we are in a great situation these days compared to where we were, uh, you can do a lot better than just putting your iPhone on a tripod. Uh, that will present something that is passable, but Tim walks through a couple of different uh, equipment options and ideas for how you can do that. Now, again, not everybody should be filming themselves. Uh, you could probably say not everybody should be doing podcasts or writing articles, but uh, for those of you who want to do it, then this is a great way to kind of step on the right foot step out in the with the right foot. You don't want to step on anyone's foot. Uh, so that being said, Tim doesn't care if you step on his feet because he's sharing with how with you how to create these videos. All right. Anyway, Wednesday's article, How to Fish Classing, Classic Angling Cinema. How to Fish Classic Angling Cinema. Uh, there is a, on Disney Plus and on the internet for free, uh, a Goofy cartoon, like Mickey Mouse and Goofy, Goofy, a uh, Goofy cartoon called How to Fish. And it was made in 1942. And it's fantastic. It is just well made and it is funny and it is pointed for us anglers to witness the ridiculousness of what we do and the fact that an anthropomorphic cartoon dog from 80 years ago is really capturing the essence of what it means to be an angler. So if you haven't seen that, check it out on Disney Plus, check it out online at seven minutes. If it is a waste of your time, you let me know and uh, I will give you your, your money back. Uh, if you watch for free on the internet, not if you uh, subscribe to Disney+. Plus. This week's recommendation on the podcast is Loon Outdoors Dual Floatant Holder. Now, why do you need a dual floatant holder? If you are not using some shake-on floatant, then you are not doing it right. Uh, for years and years and years, I would use only liquid floatant, and once that fly got completely... Uh, you know, waterlogged and it wouldn't take floating anymore. It wouldn't be, you couldn't dry it off enough to put floating on it and make it float. Then I would just tie in a new fly. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, we have more than one fly in our box, so might as well use them. But using that dry shake on floatant one with the, uh, the desiccant in it is an excellent thing to do to dry your fly out and keep it floating. But there aren't a lot of holders for it. Now, there's nothing wrong with putting it in your pocket, but to have them both right next to each other and super accessible is great. And Loon makes a inexpensive little product, less than $15, that you can snap onto your vest, your waders, your sling pack, wherever, and have both your shakedown floatant and your liquid floatant at hand. I like convenient. I like easy. I also like attachment things that are made of soft materials like this one, nylon webbing and a stretch nylon, so that it keeps things quiet as I walk through the woods. I don't like jangling and jingling as my sling pack and I move along the trail. So for all the right reasons, this is a great little product. It would it will work for loon floatants and it will also work for other brands. So no matter whose stuff you use, and I like loons again because they're they're um 
their liquid floatants are stable. And so I, I really appreciate their stuff. Definitely check it out. You, If you are looking for something that can hold more than one bottle of floatant and have it at the ready, this is a great option. So I'll put a link to this Loon dual floatant holder on the show notes for this podcast page on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv join captain justin leak and meredith mccord for the best fishing action along panama city beach tune in to chasing the sun every sunday at 9 30 a.m eastern on waypoint tv